Friday service. Life is hard. There's lots of disappointments and difficulties and frustrations and pain and suffering. Because of that, some have come to the conclusion that maybe God doesn't care. That maybe God is far off. He got this world started and he's a great distance away and doesn't care about what we're going through. Doesn't recognize our suffering. And some come to that conclusion and think that, well, if God doesn't care, then I don't care, and this is going to be a distant relationship, and I don't owe him anything, and he doesn't owe me anything. He's just going to get through this life alone. For others, they've come to the conclusion that God is angry that they've failed, that they've sinned, and what keeps God distance and what's happening to me is an issue of God being angry. And Good Friday settles the question. Who is God and does He care? We're in the end now of a series that we've been preaching through, the prophets, And in the middle of Israel's failure, at the height, really, of their failure, the height of their unfaithfulness, God made promises. Was God angry about their unfaithfulness? He was. Was God judging their unfaithfulness? He was. God cares about sin. But in the middle of that, He made promises. Emmanuel. God with us. How can it be that God is with us? The promise of a new heart and a new spirit that will be given to us. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You shall be called my people and I will be your God. And right in the middle of it, the very first sermon we preached... God addresses the unfaithfulness of people and talks about how they have continued to leave God's side and fail, and he makes this promise, come now, let us reason together. Isaiah 1, verse 18, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them whiter than snow. He makes this promise, and all along, how can he make that promise? If God is holy... How can he promise that, is he going to just ignore the sin? Is he going to sweep it under the rug? In these prophecies, we've seen both that God does judge and take sin seriously, and that God will redeem by the power of his name. And all of that is accomplished on the cross. This is what we celebrate today. This is what we grieve today, that our sin resulted in God's commitment to go to the cross for us. We're in Isaiah 53 tonight. And in it, there is the prophecy of a servant. God's been prophesying about his mighty right hand 
bringing good to his people. Good like we can't imagine. Prophecies of sin being done away with and prophecies of a new covenant, a new relationship unhindered with God. And in Isaiah 53, he makes it clear how this is accomplished. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He carries it to the cross. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Let me read it for you. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they have made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of the soul he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall come the righteous one, my servant. Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Tonight, we remember. We remember that these words that were spoken of the servant of the Lord, the arm of God, who came and died on the cross, did so out of love for us. It was God's plan to not leave us lost to not leave us in our sin. It was God's plan that His goodness would win and He would redeem. This passage begins as we look at He was despised and rejected, verses 1 through 3. He 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The question of this sermon, I've already posed the question, is God good and is God close? Does he care? But really the question is, do you believe? Who has believed in this servant that God has sent? Who has trusted him? And the argument of Isaiah is that you can trust God. The people were turning away to other gods, to other things that they would focus upon and put their trust in. They would put their trust in man. They would put their trust in warriors. They would put their trust in other gods. And God is arguing, trust me, and I'll save you. And here he asks the question again, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What is the arm of the Lord accomplishing? When we think about these promises that have been made, that we've been talking about now for four months, all of these promises of God doing these mighty and good things for his people, now we're going to talk about the arm of the Lord. That means the power of God, the the one who is bringing this sovereign power where he is going to accomplish his goodness on our behalf. And he's doing it, putting it on display with a suffering servant. We would imagine, as many did in the interim, after these promises were made about the servant that would come, they imagined a Messiah that would come and be strong and powerful and carry a big sword. And Jesus came and was despised and died. And it's the power of God put on display on the cross. Oh, the powerful cross, the wonderful cross, the horrible cross where our Savior died. We are in the middle of a poem and has five stanzas, and the first stanza starting in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, and the last one, 53, 10 to 12, speak about God raising up the servant, glorifying the servant for what the servant is accomplishing. The middle three, which we're going to be looking at through all three of these points, speak about his humiliation. Could any have imagined that God would send his son to be humiliated for us? And how extensive was his humiliation? In verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root upon dry ground. So he is young and he is dry in a land that was all about what could grow, the agrarian society. He had no form or majesty that we should look him and no beauty that we should desire him. I don't think this is talking about Jesus was ugly. I think he's talking about there was nothing in him that said mighty warrior. He was meek. He was gentle. He didn't force himself on people. He spoke to people and pleaded with people and he aligned himself with the marginalized. He aligned himself with the broken. He was born in poverty. And when people looked at him, they looked past him. This is our Savior. This is the King, the Son of God, the one who was promised. No former majesty that we should consider him or look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men. That word despised in the English doesn't do the Hebrew credit. In, in English, we think of despised, it comes with an emotion, a revulsion. In the Hebrew, despised means overlooked, disregarded, of no use. People looked at Jesus and said, of no use to us. He was despised by the people he came to save. I don't know about you, I don't know how long I would have stuck around to save people that despised me. And Jesus stayed and forgave and loved. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one as, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What does it mean they hid their faces? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Well, it begs the question that I started with in this sermon. Does God care? Is God so distant that he doesn't see that I'm suffering? He doesn't see that I'm lost. He doesn't see that I'm struggling and, and don't know what to do. And the cross declares clearly, and Jesus' life declares clearly, he entered into our suffering. He took on our suffering. He shared in our shame by taking on our sin. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It's pretty remarkable that Jesus walked this planet and ministered for three years and his own friends and neighbors rejected him. They looked at him when he went to Nazareth to tell them, I have been sent here. I fulfill this promise. And they said, nah, not you. They were expecting a warrior. They weren't expecting a servant, even though God promised it 700 years before he came. He was despised and rejected. By his wounds, we are healed. How is that possible? It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He has borne our griefs and sorrows. If you look in verse 5, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. God had been foreshadowing this moment in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system. The whole idea of the sacrificial system is that you bring an animal to be sacrificed because of your sins, and your sins go on to that animal. There was a, a lamb that was a scapegoat who, was, who the sins were put upon. In Leviticus 16.22, the idea is that he would carry the sins out of the camp. And all of that is foreshadowing. That couldn't solve their sin problem. All of that was foreshadowing one who would carry our transgressions to the cross pay for our sins to take a people that have been unfaithful and unite it with a faithful God who loves us because Jesus bore our transgressions he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities if you know the story of the cross if you've heard the suffering that was involved, the rejection, the humiliation, the public nature of it. He went willingly 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. How much does God care? How close has he gotten? What does it mean, God with us, Emmanuel? It means that God resolved to bring good to us and to love us even when we failed. Even while we were still failing. Even while we were unfaithful, God's faithfulness came near to us and saved us. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We continue to struggle and live in a world that is broken and marked by sin and has sorrows, disappointments, and failures. We still are surrounded by relationships that are torn, and broken, and beleaguered. And yet, the chastisement of Christ brings us peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, and peace with ourselves. How can we, while we're still sinning, have peace? It's because our eyes are focused on the one who paid it all. His chastisement brings us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. How is it that with his wounds are healed? Well, we're going to study Hebrews in 2024, and I'm excited about it. And in Hebrews, what is clearly declared is there is only one sacrifice that is sufficient once for all, and that is the sacrifice of Christ, and his wounds we're taking the payment of our sin so that we have to we are clean we are righteous we are right before God and we can come into his presence with boldness and maybe you might say well i'm a sinner god can't love me and i would say we're all sinners and god does love us and how do i know because of the cross He went to the cross, and the words on his lips were forgiveness. In verse 6, some people have thought, well, God went to the cross because we were worth it. He saw beyond our sin and saw that we were actually really good people. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was despised and rejected. By his wounds we are healed. It was God and God's will to crush him. I don't know if you've seen the passion. I saw the passion once. I haven't seen it again. Maybe one time I'll buoy my courage to see it again. It is very troubling for me to see my Lord and Savior treated the way that we treated him. But there is a place where Mel Gibson steps into that movie and it's his hands that you see with the nail and the hammer. Is Mel Gibson a mess? Absolutely. And in acknowledging that, he is saying, 
It was my sin that put him on the cross. But one of the things that is crystal clear from this passage is that it was God's hands that put his son on the cross. That we could equally make an argument that it was God's hands on the hammer and the nails. He's the one who crushed him. Going on and continuing in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Does that mean that Jesus didn't speak? No, he spoke while he was being crucified, while he was being judged. He didn't argue in his defense. He could have. He could have. He could have called 10,000 angels and he could have ended it. He didn't make a defense. He went like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken. These are not nice words to be spoken about the Son of God who came to love us. This is how we treated him. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and yet there was no deceit in his mouth. Before he came, it was prophesied that Jesus would be sinless. And yet we would treat him like the worst of sinners. In verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. What does that mean? It's the argument that God himself chose the cross. That Jesus went willingly. It was his plan. Satan may have conspired to kill Jesus. People in power may have conspired and even bought the opportunity to betray him. The people just wanted him dead. But the reality is, from the beginning of the promises of God, it was God's plan to send Jesus to the cross for us. And it wasn't just God the Father that made this decision. It was God the Father... God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and we see that throughout his ministry, that they are in tandem, showing what his heart is for us. There are many horrors in this story of the cross, but maybe the most obscene is that we would think that God doesn't love the world, or we would think that God doesn't care about my pain and suffering. That might be the biggest horror of all, that God came this far to reach us and to express his love to us, and we're still asking the question, who has believed, who has heard from us? And to whom has the Lord been revealed? Have you believed? Do you know that Jesus came for you? God the Father is with the will of the Lord to crush Jesus in verse 10. And if you were to look back at verse 4, it says he was smitten by God. In verse 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There was a spiritual transaction that happened that humanity couldn't see then, and by faith we can see it. 
What they didn't know is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had decided to fix our sin problem. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'm going to make them whiter than snow. Finally, the promise makes sense. At the beginning of this series, to be honest with you, chapter 1 of Isaiah makes no sense. All of the promises are completed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When his soul makes, I'm in the middle of verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What is the will of the Lord? The will of the Lord is to not judge. The will of the Lord is to bless, is to bring love into our lives, is to restore, is to redeem. That's his heart. Is he a judge? Of course he will judge sin. How do I know he'll judge sin? Look at the cross. That's him judging sin. Sin isn't ever swept under a rug with God. He solved our sin problem for all who believe. Who has believed? In verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. I could have made this a shorter passage and it would have been easier for me to preach it. I don't want you to miss that, verse 11. The righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. The ones who place their trust in the Savior, in Jesus Christ, will never pay for their sin. Ultimately, they are righteous already. It's the righteousness of the suffering servant that is accounted to us. And he bears our iniquities, our sins. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus died for you and me. Jesus is God's plan to redeem, to restore, to bring peace, to heal this world. And at the very end of this passage, it says he's making intercession for us. What does that mean? He's pleading with you. He's pleading for you. Does God care? Can you see Jesus on the cross? Saying on your behalf, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Is Jesus angry? Is God angry? The truth is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. His wrath, because he is holy, because he is righteous, he cannot abide our sin. 
That is throughout Scripture and is evident in these prophecies. But he has made a way that we don't have to pay for that sin. That sin was paid for on the cross. So the question of the night is, who has believed? Have you believed? The truth is, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to be a pastor. I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve the love of God. But God so loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're good. Thank you that your resolve and your promise is to love, to adopt, to redeem, to restore. And thank you that that good work in your heart was accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross, making atonement for many. Father, I pray that you would restore and redeem tonight any who are lost. In Jesus' name, amen.